0: Thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. And what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this, this is the one to whom I will look is the one to whom will have my favor he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word Lord you made it so clear that you are the God over all you Jesus Christ have created all things by your will they were created and sustained by you you look to the humble but you will oppose the proud you will give grace to the humble but you will oppose the proud and so right now I pray for an outpouring of your grace because every heart in this place bows in its rightful place before you to humble ourselves under the authority of your word this is not just a book it's not just a bedtime story this is your word By the word of your power, you sustain the universe. There is living and active power in your word. It is God-breathed. It is sufficient for training in righteousness and correction and rebuke God. And I pray right now we'd humble ourselves in knowing that. And say, Lord, change me, show me, help me, save me contrite in heart, dependent fully on you, that we cannot come to you on our own, that we've tried running this life without you and it's just not working and grow us in a fear of you an awe, a reverence, an adoration that says, yes, Jesus, you are who you say you are and I need you. Lord, whatever distractions are on people's hearts today in faith, we just I pray we just take a moment, cast those on you because you care for us You say, humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord, and at the due time, he will lift you up. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. May it be so, Lord. Be with my mouth. I pray for your understanding, your unction, and your utterance today, Holy Spirit. Say what you want to say to your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is a blessing to be here with you this morning. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 41 to 51. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, just raise your hand up there, and one of our ushers will be by momentarily to put a Bible in your lap. And if you do not have a Bible at home, then please take that as a free gift so we can encourage you to continue to study God's Word and abide with Him on your own time as well. John chapter 6, 41 to 51. And it's on page 520 of those Bibles that are being handed out right now. 5 to 0. Well, today we continue on in our series of the Gospel of John called Life in the Sun. And this series is encompassing chapters 5 to 7 as we did 1 to 4 last fall. And so over the last few weeks... We've been looking at John chapter 6 specifically in what's called one of the most famous passages of scripture called the Bread of Life Discourse. And it is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. Now it's very important each of these seven statements that we will Lord willing see throughout this gospel. It's very important we understand why Jesus is making them. So you'll see it on the screen. The purpose of the I am statements is to define correctly who Jesus is as the Son of God and describe his purpose. What's his purpose? Coming to save people from their sin and have life in him. The I am statements from Jesus' own mouth about who he is. Forget everything else. Listen to who Jesus says he is. His words have the authority. And each of the seven I am statements are different aspects of who Christ is and the ministry he's been given. So here, in verses 22 to 59, as we've been looking at, he says, I am the bread of life. He says, in me is true life, satisfying life, and ultimately eternal life. And so today, we are going to address the truth. Jesus addresses the truth of how we are to receive this bread. How we are to receive the bread of life. And it answers the the question, how do I come to eat of the bread of life? That's the big question for today. How do I come to eat of the bread of life? And the answer we'll see very clearly today is this. We must be taught by God. We must be taught by God. If we are to receive the bread of life, we must be taught by God. Now why is that such a crucial truth? That Jesus would take these 11 verses to focus on it. Because we live in a world today that believes the lie that people can come to and eat of the bread of life apart from the sovereign work of God in their lives. That's a huge deception in our world today. We can come to eternal life apart from the sovereign work of God drawing us to himself. We don't need to be taught by God. We think we can come to God, come to eternal life on our own effort based on how much knowledge we have. If I know enough of the Bible and can quote enough verses, then somehow I must be saved. No. Nope. And we get offended increasingly. We live in a world that increasingly is offended by the truth of God that states we have no hope to come to him apart from his work in us. That's humbling. You state this truth in much of the world today and you are considered a bigot. You are considered intolerant. Increasingly. And here in our text today, we're going to see two true, crucial truths we must embrace. Two absolutely crucial truths we must embrace if we are to come to Jesus Christ and eat of the living bread that leads to life both now and into eternity. So let's stand to honor the authority of God's word, and we will read John chapter 6, verses 41 to 51. Verse 41 So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one, hear this, loved ones, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Pretty clear. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Hear the word of the Lord, loved ones. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, the first point we see here is that if we are to have life in Christ, we must be drawn to him by the sovereignty of God. If we are to have life in Christ, we must be drawn to him by the sovereignty of God. And the question we are confronted with in these first six verses is this, only God can draw people to himself, but will I trust him to use me in this? but will I trust him to use me in this? Let's get our context. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So, a reminder of where we're at. Here's our location. The northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Just the day before, he was in Bethsaida, just on the other side of the lake, feeding the 5,000. And now he is here in this Capernaum synagogue. You'll see a few pictures here. All right, And he's teaching this mob that has followed him there. Now why have they followed him and tried to track him down? Because they saw just yesterday, the day before, many of them saw and then many heard of him feeding 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, again, I have to remind you, let's not miss the magnitude of that. That's not including women and children that he fed. So it's upwards around of about 20,000 by conservative estimates, it's incredible. And the mood here of what's been going on, if you've noticed the last two weeks we've been in this discourse, it's increasingly hostile. Increasingly hostile against Jesus. Why? Because he's just finished declaring that he is the bread of life and that he has come down from heaven to give life and that only those who believe in him will have eternal life. He declares himself, in saying that, he declares himself equal with God. Now, in the Jewish... Eyes, you have to understand this. Put yourself in the context. That is considered nothing less than blasphemy to declare that you are equal with God. All right. And so here's Jesus coming in, saying he came from the Father, which is saying, I am equal with God. And that's not helping to lighten the mood in that synagogue. That's increasing hostility against him. And so look at the response of the people. We don't have to guess at this. Look at verse 41 after he says this into the text. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? See, what we see here in these first two verses is a major unbelief and rejection of Jesus. Okay, this is not a question of, well, do you think we got it wrong? Maybe, maybe this is, maybe he is who he's at. Eh, they're grumbling. Now, you have to understand, the word grumble there, we, he uses the same word in Exodus 16, when he talks about the, the Jewish people grumbling against God in the wilderness, it means this, to murmur in a low tone. Murmur, 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 murmur. In a low tone. This. Who does he? Can't you just see this? He's standing in the synagogue. Put yourself in there. You got a seat. You're listening to this. And then you see the whispers. You see the hands. Who does does he think he is? Who Who does he think he is claiming this about himself? He's a punk from Galilee. We know his mother and father. What do you mean son of God? He's the son of a carpenter. That family's poor peasants. What do you mean? Who is he to claim this? You see it in a low tone. Who is he to claim? I saw him as a baby from heaven. He made my family a stool. So here they are in their unbelief, just raising this hostility, just total, flat out rejection. And they said, now he's saying he comes from the dwelling place of God? What's that? Heaven. He's claiming he's equal with God? This carpenter equal with God? This long-awaited Messiah in whom eternal life is found? Really? Can anything good come out of Nazareth where he's born? Really? Really? Don't think so. And so hearing this, Jesus is sitting there. He hears this. Look at his response. Go back to the text, 43 to 46. So Jesus answered them. He goes, do not grumble. Stop murmuring among yourselves, okay, guys? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. See what Jesus does there? He lovingly, he lovingly rebukes their rejection of him. He lovingly rebukes their rejection of him and their unbelief in him. How? By telling him, telling them to stop grumbling, because the only way they could even get past their grumbling and come to see him for who he is and come to believe in him and see him through the eyes of faith and not through the eyes of flesh anymore, of just a carpenter, is if God the Father who sent him to earth, you see that? Sent me, draws them to himself. Now, Let's understand, what does that mean, draw? Like, what is he, drawing something, drawing pictures? What, what does the word draw mean? Let's dive in. The Greek for draw means this. I'll write this down, that's key, the whole thing turns on it. it. leads. It means to lead people by his power. He's leading them to see his son, Jesus Christ, for who he is and to respond to him. It implies the object being moved, this is humbling, is incapable of propelling itself towards something. Or in the case of persons, is unwilling to do so voluntarily. That's a humbling word right there. Incapable of propelling ourselves towards Jesus on our own. No wonder you're grumbling. The Father hasn't drawn. You go, stop grumbling. You haven't been drawn. Jesus says, unless God, in his sovereignty, by his mercy, opens your eyes to the truth and draws or leads you to himself by his power, because you won't go there voluntarily, it doesn't matter how much of the truth you hear or see. You can come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and unless God is drawing you to to himself, it doesn't matter how much of God's word you hear. If he's not drawing you, you're not coming to him. You will not come to believe in me, Jesus says, because you cannot come to me on your own. But for those who God, in his sovereignty, does draw to himself, what happens? What does he say? They will be saved. They will be saved and be given eternal life, raised by me on the last day, to dwell with me forever. Jesus isn't pulling any punches here, is he? Now today, just pause, think about that truth That we cannot come to God unless he draws us to himself. Okay, is this a popular truth in our world today? Is it? Not even close. Not even close. We're increasingly fed the lie that we can get to God on our own. Our own efforts. Work harder to get to God. Perform, 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 and maybe you'll reach eternal life all over the place, saturated in it. Good works lead to heaven. Live a good life and you'll, you'll, you'll get to the dwelling place of God in eternal life. Work hard at meeting all rules and checklists. In fact, what's really sobering, just even in a quick research over this, every other religion is based on this philosophy. Work your way. To salvation except Jesus. Every other religion, do, 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 do. Jesus is like, done. You can't work your way to me. Let's break it down, loved ones. This is so important, we're clear. Salvation in Christ is always, ever, Completely God-initiated. If you are saved here in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin and confessed him as your Lord and Savior, that is amazing, but that has only happened because God initiated it in your life. It's not like one day you on your own strength woke up and said, well, okay, today I'll believe in Jesus. Mm-mm. We are spiritually, why is this? Why cannot we get to God on our own? Because we are spiritually, get this, mentally and physically unable to initiate this and come to Christ. Why? Because down in the deepest parts of us, here's the truth, loved ones, and I say this with as much grace and compassion as I can, we are all rebels against God. We are rebels against God. Why? Because of our sin. Because of our sin against him. We are born that way. We are totally depraved to do anything on our own to get to Jesus. And it's the sin in our lives that separates us from God. Why? Because he is a holy God. And he has righteous standard. And we cannot meet that on our own. And apart from his sovereign work of choosing... Does this humble you, loved ones? Apart from his sovereign work of choosing us and drawing us to himself by his grace, which is God giving us what we don't deserve, and through his power... There is nothing, here goes, doesn't get any better. There's nothing in us that even wants to turn from our sin and come to Him, apart from His grace drawing us to Himself. There's nothing in us that wants to even turn to Him, to turn to Jesus for salvation. That's why in John 15, 16, Jesus is speaking to His disciples and He says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. You didn't choose me. And this verse from Romans chapter 3, two verses actually, ten to eleven makes it so clear that we cannot seek, we don't seek God apart from his sovereign work in our lives because we can't. We cannot seek him without him. Look at Romans three, ten to eleven, you'll see it on the screen. As it is written, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands. And no one seeks for God. Let's break this down. This is so important. As it is written. What's Paul talking about as he's talking to the Roman church? He's talking about what's written in Psalm 14, Psalm 53. None is righteous. No, not one. That means none can stand before God on their own merit. You and I are not holy enough to stand before the Lord. None is righteous. We are born into sin and totally depraved to do anything about that apart from him. No human can earn righteousness. All the good works we think we do, Jesus says they're like filthy rags. No one understands. What's that? No one can understand the word of God apart from the Holy Spirit's work in their lives to give them clarity to do it. You can hear it, and you can read it, and you can go again and again and again, but unless the power of the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and gives you clarity of understanding, it will just be words on a page. There is no merit that can say, wow, I've learned a lot about God. You've learned anything you've learned because God himself was enabling you to do it. And same with me. So no one can understand, and now this one, no one seeks for God apart from him drawing them to himself by his mercy, opening their eyes and hearts to see and respond to the truth. No one seeks for God. If you're saved here, there was no way you were seeking God until he got a hold of you. So if we're not seeking God, what do we seek? The world. More sin. And this is why we should not be surprised when unbelievers act like, well, unbelievers. And you say, well, how could they do that? Because they're not seeking God. They can't apart from him. Now let's get some clarity here. Drawing. This doesn't mean this—that those that God chooses to draw to Himself, it doesn't mean when God's drawing you to Himself, you're coming kicking and screaming. Fine, Jesus, fine, fine, I'll just come to you. Uh uh-uh. uh It's not like you want to. Oh, I love my sin so much. I love the darkness so much. Oh, Jesus, fine. I guess. I'll, I guess I'll come. It's not like He's drawing you kicking and screaming like a little child. Okay, there's nothing about God that is stealing your heart. Mm -mm. God is drawing you to himself. It means as he draws us to himself, he opens our hearts and gives us the desire to want to come. And he gives us the desire to want to respond to him. To say, I see, I'm seeing Jesus for more of who he is and seeing the world for more than what it is. And wanting to go to the light and less from the darkness. And yes, the temptation is still there to go because the spirit is at war with the flesh in us. And yes, the temptation is there, but I want him more. I'm starting to see the emptiness of the perishable bread of the world. And I'm looking more to the breath. And there's God drawing himself. Don't do that. It's going to bow out. It's going to bow out. It's going to end up empty. And you're starting to see it for what it is. And that is a work of the sovereignty of God in your life. His grace becomes irresistible to us. His mercy, his grace goodness his love his kindness his salvation by God's mercy he opens us up to see that and we're like yes it's an irresistible grace that he's using to draw us to himself and it's just been amazing like so I've been by God's grace and his mercy a pastor for about 10 years now you know time flies huh but here's the thing There have been a number of times when God in his kindness has given me the opportunity to be sitting across the table from someone and we open up a passage of scripture and they've brought their questions, they've brought their doubts and all this stuff and if they have a heart that truly wants to seek the Lord, they're reading it and all of a sudden, I remember it happened last year, last year right here, sitting across and all of a sudden, bang, eyes open and they're like... Pastor Ray, I get it. I see it. I see it. And in that moment, you see God's grace. Bam! And they're like, I never, I've never. i read this a hundred times. I have not seen it before. But I get it now. I want to follow Jesus in those moments. You're just brought to tears and you're like, only by the grace of God. It's so kind of the Lord in his mercy in that moment through his living and active word to open the eyes of the blind to see. He opens their hearts ears to hear his voice through his word and helps instruct them in it and understand it and believe it increasingly in our lives. Doesn't stop the moment of salvation. That's the beautiful part of the gospel. It keeps working. So how is this shown? How do we know when God's at work? Because they come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation in his time and in his way. When we embrace the truth, here it is, here it is, ready? When we embrace the truth, we embrace Christ. When we embrace the truth, we embrace Christ because God is drawing us to see Him for who He is and respond. They believe who He says He is, not as a carpenter, not as the son of a few peasants only, but as the king. As the Savior, and that He teaches the truth about God. Why? As He says in the text, because He's seen and dwells with the Father. First hand knowledge. No one has seen God, but Christ. Now, sometimes this doctrine, I want to be very sensitive here, loved ones, but we're not going to compromise on the truth of God's Word. Sometimes this doctrine can be pretty divisive and offensive. What do you mean? God chooses some and what others. How is that fair? Let me ask you a question. What is your standard of fairness you're using? Yours or the Lord's? Why did he, why did he choose this person and not this? I don't know. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Why is he taking so long with this person? But the first time this person heard the gospel, they were saved. I don't know. We're not given that. The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, belong to the Lord, loved ones. But, the, but this, is the, this is the truth that we see here. And I don't want you to miss this. What's stunning, what's absolutely stunning about this, is not that God chooses to save some, but that he chooses to save any of us. That's stunning. This I'm better than you I've got it figured out. Who are you? This, I'm greater than you. What's stunning is that God chooses to save any of us. Hey, if you're a Christian in this room, let me ask you a question. If you personally, genuinely received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, are you still stunned that God chose you? You were doing nothing to seek Him. Neither was I. I remember where I was when God got a hold of my life, and I was a train wreck of brokenness and darkness and sin. At the age of 24, having grown up in a Christian home my entire life, hearing family devotions every morning, train wreck at 24, until finally the Lord in his kindness said it's time. Where were you? Do you remember that? Are you still in awe of that moment? of how he's been drawing you to himself. Let's be stunned that he chose us. Only God can draw people to himself. Question, will I trust in him to use me in this? You say, wait a second, that, that application question seems kind of off when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Well, <laughs> here's the deal. If you and I can't do anything in ourselves to be drawn to God... How do we? What does this mean in terms of how we apply this? Yes, we want to be in awe that God chose us. But there's another element of this, especially as Christians, we need to keep in mind and understand about this. It's so easy to fall into the mindset of this. Well, if God is the one who has to draw people to himself, why would I need to do anything in terms of evangelism and sharing my faith? I mean, God's ultimately responsible to draw people. Why does he even need to use me? I don't have to evangelize. I don't have to risk relationships. I don't have to risk my job. Why don't I just sit a back seat? Okay, hold on. Time out. Time out. Here's the truth. Divine sovereignty, hey, loved ones, match this over any area of your life. Divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. Divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. God has ordained the result, but here's the other thing He's ordained in this the means. He has not just ordained the result, He has ordained the means. Trusting God to do it, right here, means trusting He will use us. Does it ever blow your mind, loved ones? that the sovereign God of the universe, in all of his perfected wisdom, chose to use us as his instruments, by the power of his spirit to draw people to himself. Does that, oh yeah, the people who are not even seeking me, I could use them. What? What? That's mind-blowing. Trusting God to do it means trusting he's going to use us. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and election should empower us and embolden us in a big-time way. You say, "What what does that look like when it's doing it? Three ways. God says... He wants to use us and has ordained us to be used in this. Only God can draw the heart, but he calls us to, ready, number one, pray for gospel fruit. Only God can draw the heart, but he calls us, first off, pray for gospel fruit earnestly. Look at Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The desire of my heart, the earnestness of my passion is that you may be saved. Paul says to the Romans. He says that you may be saved. There's an earnestness. He's praying for that earnestly. And when, when we get up, here's what it looks like. When we're with our kids... When we're in the car, when we're at the, in the lunchroom, when we're going to the grocery store, when we're going to McDonald's, when we're going to all these things. Don't know if you eat at McDonald's. Here, here, here. There you go. But when you, when you go into the street, when you go into the businesses, here's the prayer. Lord, open their heart and draw them to yourself as they hear your word through this circumstance that they're in. Listen, listen, loved ones, and we'll get to the next part in a second. But God also ordains circumstances to draw them to himself brokenness. He used that in my life big time. Because oftentimes, sadly, it takes us getting to the end of ourselves. Use this, Lord. So I don't know whether it's a family member, whether it's a painful situation, a health situation, whatever it is, before you ask the Lord, hey, Lord, will you heal them and comfort them? Say, Lord, will you save them through this? Because that is worth more than any earthly healing. That's a one that leads to eternal life. Use this circumstance in my kids. One of the hardest things I pray over my children each day as I'm driving them to school is, Lord, do what you need to do in their lives today to get the glory. That's a hard thing to pray It goes way beyond. Lord, keep them safe and keep them comfortable. Just help that. Lord, do what you need to do in their lives so that you are glorified and draw them to yourself. There's been some hard days, man. But God is faithful. Amen? God is faithful. And he will draw them to himself, he's allowed it. So think about when you're when you're praying as you're driving to work tomorrow, Lord, use that circumstance for that coworker. Who's that coworker? Write that name down. Who's that family member? Who is it? Say, Lord, draw them to yourself. Praying earnestly for them. Don't give up when you don't think you see anything. God is doing a bazillion things behind the scenes that you and I have no eyes on. But he's got it all covered. Lord, Lord, people on the street that I'm going to sh- meet today and people that I'm going to share the gospel with today. Because you have to understand, God has put you in their lives at that moment for a reason. That's the beauty of his sovereignty. And we call out to them and say, Lord, Lord, use it. Now, to help us with this, loved ones, I might say, where do I even start with this? We have put together a tool for you. There's a hundred of these at the Connections desk. And we're going to use them in our prayer night as well, coming up on Wednesday. Don't miss it. The first one is all, this is all how to pray for unbelievers. All of it. First one is prayers for salvation. All scriptural references are here, and then a description of why we pray this according to God's word. And then on the back, prayers for gospel demonstration and declaration for our lives and what we're praying over each other as we seek to witness as the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. All right, pray earnestly. There's copies for every single one of you at the connections desk and use it to help guide your prayers. So we pray earnestly. But here's the other thing, we go in the gospel power. We go in the power of the gospel boldly. So we don't just stay there and pray. That's amazing. And we need to do that. That is, without prayer, we're dead. But here's the reality. God calls us to action. Go in gospel power boldly. Acts 1.8, he says, But you will receive power, he says to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Notice that. Will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Lord, fill me, fill me with your spirit to boldly declare the gospel to those around me today and help me not to be afraid to go. Help me not to be afraid at that moment in the lunchroom when someone says, what do you believe? Or I need to stand up for you in class. Give me the gospel power in that moment through your Holy Spirit to boldly declare the saving message of Jesus Christ and draw those you've called And chosen to yourself through it. Don't let the fear of man silence this mouth. First, pray for gospel fruit earnestly. Be, go in gospel power boldly. And see, we see this as well share the gospel truth faithfully. What do you do in that moment? what do you do? So you've been praying and there's the opportunity. He gives it to you. You go and you step in. Here it is. Share the gospel truth faithfully. Look at Romans 10, 14 and 15 and 17. How then, that is non-believers, will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? And how are they to hear, look at this, without someone preaching? Doesn't mean you've got to get up in a pulpit in your classroom. It means when someone says, What do you believe? You tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? There's the going right there. As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The only way, here's the stunning thing about this truth, Romans 10. The only way the lost come to Christ, here it is, is through the preaching of the gospel. As God draws people to Himself and softens their heart and opens their eyes to see the truth, we need to preach, loved ones. We need to share it. And you're in that person's life for a reason, sees it, sees it in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not our job to try and guess who might be saved or who might not be. It is our job under the election and sovereignty of God to preach the gospel faithfully in his power as we are given the opportunity, regardless if the person seems too far gone or not. You ever have that person? You know that person who's like, I think that person might be too far. I don't know if God can get a hold of him. Really? Really? There's that person. Write them down. Pray. Go. Share. It's not our job to figure out who. That's God's. We have the freedom to proclaim. Our job is not to save, it is to sow. Will you trust the Lord to save whom He will in His time and way as you make yourself available to share the gospel with them? And be encouraged. Can I just encourage you, loved ones? It may seem like nothing's happening. You've shared the gospel, you've invited that person, even church, you've shared that, they know what you believe in. It just seems like nothing's happening. And it's like, is anything going on? The heart is too hard. Listen, trust that as God's word goes forth, it will not come back void, Isaiah 55, but it will achieve the purpose for which it is sent. Trust, it's not your job to save. It's not even your job to see. It's your job to sow. Be encouraged right there. Jeremiah 1.12, one of my favorite texts is this. God says, I am watching over my word to perform it. That person might put up a fight against you, God can take care of that quite easily. I'm watching over my word to perform it. Press on, parents, prodigal children in this room. Press on, loved ones. You may not see it. You just keep sowing and allow the Lord to do what he desires. Don't be discouraged. If we are to have life in Christ, we must be drawn to him. And as Christ draws draws us to himself, last point today is this. We must believe in him. Believe in him that eternal life is from God. Question, living bread is found in Christ alone. Will I believe in him? Look at 47 to 51. 47 to 51. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, Jesus finishes this section of the dialogue by restating that he alone is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. The only one. Who can give eternal spiritual life that is satisfying and fulfilling both now and into eternity? And notice in verse 49, what does he remind the Jews? They're they're picking the fight about the manna again. He reminds the Jews that the manna that their ancestors ate in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years, the manna was the bread from heaven that God provided daily for them ultimately couldn't sustain them and give them spiritual life for eternity. And as a result, they died. They challenged them on it in verse 31, because remember, they thought it was like the miracle par excellence. You can prove you're the Messiah if you can repeat the manna thing. And Jesus rebukes them and says, you think that's amazing? He says, that sustained you for a day. What I'm talking about, true bread, is sufficient and lasting for eternity. And then in 50 to 51, he goes on to say, I'm the bread that comes from heaven. And unlike the manna bread your ancestors ate that ultimately couldn't save them, whoever eats of me, what does that term eat of me mean, believes in me, believes that I am the son of God, the savior of the world, who came and has come to die for you and will raise to life And give all forgiveness of sin and salvation if you believe that true manna, that's going to live forever. Because you will be given eternal life and it will not be taken away from you. You are secure. And the bread that I'm giving to give the world at a chance at eternal life is nothing less than the bread of my flesh. By coming down as fully God and fully man and dying on the cross for our sin. I will give my life so that if you believe in me, I will save yours. Whoever. And you may say this. We hear that word believe a lot. I want us to be really clear on what this means. You may say, what does it mean to truly believe in Christ? Here it is. I love how commentator, one commentator put it. He said, believing is staking your life. Really? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Here you go. Staking your life On the fact that the only way to live is to turn from your sin and receive him. There's believing in Jesus. It's willing to stake your life on that truth. It's placing all your hope in him to sustain you. It's like Christ or bust. It's a deep sense that you will die without him. It's placing all of your confidence in him as the only one who can give you life and strength in a future. And the best part is all you need to do is receive it. Living bread is found in Christ alone, loved ones. Question, will you believe in him? There's what it means. And if you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your personal savior, notice verse 51. It says, if anyone eats of that bread, circle the word anyone You're not talking about spiritually elite people only, the the best end of society. No, 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 anyone. The gospel is for all. That all would come to him. As the Lord is drawing you to himself today, turn from your sin and confess him as your Lord and Savior and taste and see that the Lord, the bread of life, is good. And for those of us who are believers in this room, question for us as we go into communion. Will you believe in him that the only place real life is found in him and repent of the perishable bread that you are seeking to find life in? What is that for you? Seeking to satisfy yourself that cannot give it and in your unbelief denying that the true bread will sustain you. Where is that for you? For some of us maybe we got to We've got to stop looking at the pornography right now and ask the Lord for help and start eating the true bread instead of that which will perish. For some of us, that's our job. The perishable bread of work, 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 work anxiety, anxiety, stress, 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 stress. And God has brought you here to say, stop, eat the bread of life, come to me. I will provide what you need, but you need to trust me. For some of us, that's the idolatry of relationships. The perishable bread that we're saying, if I get a spouse, I'm going to be satisfied. If I get kids, I'm going to be satisfied. That's a lie. The true bread will lead you to life. So do the math. Where does the perishable bread lead you? It's time to turn, loved ones. Because if you are to have life in Christ, you must not only be drawn by him, but we have to believe in him.